I'd like to get right into our subject by taking us in our minds back to the time of Jesus. In fact, a little bit before Jesus came. The Bible tells us that before Jesus came, slightly before, there was a tremendous religious awakening among the Jews. In fact, this awakening was uh, manifested particularly in the ministry of John the Baptist. I'd like us to go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and read about this tremendous religious interest that was awakened shortly before Jesus began his ministry. It says here in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, that is to John the Baptist, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now what made the interest of the people particularly significant is the fact that John the Baptist appeared very much like the prophet Elijah. And the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament, ends with a promise. With the promise that before the Messiah would come, God would send Elijah to prepare the way. And here you have one that looks like Elijah, talks like Elijah, eats like Elijah, dresses like Elijah. And so there's this tremendous awakening among the Jews. They're saying, could it perhaps be that this is the expected Elijah which will bring the Messiah into the world? It's interesting to notice that uh, it says that Jerusalem, Judea, and even the regions beyond the Jordan came to hear the message of God. We know that at this particular time, there was a tremendous interest in the study also of Bible prophecy. In fact, John the Baptist quoted Isaiah 40 and verse 3, where it speaks about a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way for the Lord. In other words, people said this has to be the Elijah which will lead to the coming of Messiah because look, he's even using Isaiah 40 and verse 3 which is a prophecy about the coming of Elijah before the coming of the Messiah. So the religious leaders were studying prophecy. The multitudes were studying Bible prophecy. They were into the scriptures of the Old Testament. There was one great problem, however. And that is that as the leaders studied Bible prophecy, they studied it in the light of their own preconceived ideas. You say they believed that the Messiah, when he came, would be a glorious Messiah. He would destroy the hated Romans, he would make Jerusalem the center of the world, and he would establish the Jews on top of all of the nations once again. And of course, the multitudes, as they listened to the religious leaders, by the way, there were many denominations, all of them Jewish at this time. You have, for example, the scribes, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have the Herodians, the Essenes, the Zealots, many different denominations, but they all considered themselves the people of God. They were the Jewish nation. The leaders were teaching the people, when the Messiah comes, you can know that he's going to destroy those Romans and he's going to set up God's kingdom and favor the Jewish nation. And then Jesus came. 
And interestingly enough, folks, as you all tonight, you're going to get a sheet that has 50 messianic prophecies about the coming of Christ from the Old Testament. It's amazing. The prophecy said where he was going to be born, what he was going to speak, what he was going to do, that he would be announced by a star, that he would be born of a virgin, and many other prophecies. It even said that he was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. There were an abundance of prophecies saying when he would come and how he could come, how he would come and how he would teach. And yet when Jesus came, the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 11 that he came to his own and his own received him not. How could the religious leaders of all of these denominations of this time and all of the multitudes which they taught, instead of accepting, accepting Jesus, reject him. The reason is simple. They misunderstood the way in which Messiah would come. They read the prophecies in the light of their own preconceived notions. And when Jesus did not come as they expected, they rejected Jesus. And the amazing thing is that they not only rejected Jesus, but if you read the Gospels carefully, they chose Antichrist instead of Christ. You remember that scene where Jesus and Barabbas are standing before Pontius Pilate? Do you know that Barabbas was believed to be the Messiah by many of the Jews? In fact, he had just led an insurrection to overthrow the Roman government. This is the type of Messiah that the Jews were expecting. And when they had the choice as to whether to choose the Messiah that didn't fit with their prophetic expectations and the Messiah that did, the false Messiah, they chose the false Messiah, Barabbas. You know what the word Barabbas means? The name Barabbas means son of the father. And so really the choice were, was between two sons of the father. And they chose Barabbas. Not only that, but as we read carefully the prophecies about how Jesus was going to be delivered and how he was going to be crucified, the Jews fulfilled those prophecies from the Old Testament to a T, and they didn't even realize that they were fulfilling them. In fact, the Jewish nation became the Antichrist when they professed to be the people of God. Because instead of receiving Christ, they derailed everything in their power to destroy Christ. There could be no greater spirit of Antichrist than that. So even though they had an abundance of prophecy showing how Jesus would come and what he would do, because of their preconceived ideas about how the Messiah would come, they were deceived. And instead of receiving Jesus, they arose to destroy him. And there was only a handful of people who truly understood Bible prophecy, who accepted Jesus, and they formed the nucleus or the remnant of the Christian church. Now I would like us to go to our time. In 1948, the state of Israel was reestablished. Many Christians believe that this is one of the great signs of the end, because they believe that Bible prophecy in the Old Testament points to the reestablishment of the Jewish nation because 
most of the prophecies according to them will be fulfilled in the Middle East with the Jews. Now for those of you who were here this morning, we studied about what Jesus said regarding Israel. And we noticed that when Israel became, so to speak, anti-Christ and destroyed Christ, who was the very meaning of their existence, the meaning of their religion, Jesus took away the kingdom from them. And he gave the kingdom to the church so that the church would proclaim the message that would draw people out of darkness into God's marvelous light. In other words, according to the Bible, God is finished with the Jewish nation as his chosen instrument, and therefore Bible prophecy cannot be fulfilled through the Jewish nation. It is fulfilled through and in the Christian church. And yet today I find it extremely interesting. You go to the bookstore, you find dozens of books, and all of those books are speaking about the fulfillment of prophecy in the Middle East. You watch movies that are produced by many Christians today, like Left Behind and the Omega Code, the whole idea of the rapture, and then the seven-year tribulation for the Jews in the Middle East. You can't turn on your television on Sunday morning without seeing also a tremendous interest on the part of the preacher saying, look to the Middle East. There's going to be a rapture of the saints, and then afterwards there's going to be this tremendous tribulation for the Jews, not for the church, because the church is going to be raptured right at the beginning of the tribulation, and then the seven-year period will be for the Jews. And so everybody looks over to Israel. Everybody looks to the Middle East and says, look, there's turmoil over there in the last couple of weeks. That's an indication that prophecy is about to be fulfilled. Could it just be possible that all of this turmoil in the Middle East has been caused by Satan to distract the eyes of Christians to where prophecy is not being fulfilled? Is it just possible that the majority of the denominations, and I speak clearly, that the majority of the denominations today who claim to be Christians with their teachers and their leaders are misdirecting the minds of people to have them look to the fulfillment of prophecy in the Middle East when prophecy is being fulfilled right in the midst of the Christian church and they cannot see it because they're looking in the wrong place. I'll tell you something, folks. The devil hates the second coming as much as he hated the first coming. And if, was, if he was able to deceive practically the whole Jewish nation with practically all of their leaders, what makes you think that the devil is not going to target the whole Christian world with their leaders so that the world is expecting Jesus to come in one way when really the Bible teaches that he's going to come in a different way? It behooves us then, folks, that we study what the Bible has to say about the rapture of the saints. In other words, about the second coming of Jesus. Now, I want to go, first of all, through some of the arguments that are used by those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. By that, I mean that they believe that Jesus is going to come after the tribulation gloriously, but he's going to take the church to heaven when the tribulation begins or when the tribulation is about to begin. That's why it's called a pre-tribulation rapture. The saints are taken to heaven seven years before Jesus comes in his glorious coming. I want to go through some of the arguments that are used. And we'll just go through this list of texts that you have this evening. I'm not going to read them all 
but I'm going to refer to some of them so that you have a clear picture of what this idea involves. Now, if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, you'll see that the Apostle Paul says that Jesus will not come until the apostasy comes first. Now, what does the word apostasy mean? By the way, the Greek word in the New Testament is apostasia. It's the very word that we have in Spanish. Apostasia means what? Apostasy. In fact, in Acts 21, in verse 21, the Apostle Paul, when he goes to trial, he is accused of teaching people to forsake Moses. What does that mean? That he's accused that he te teaches people to forsake Moses. In other words, that they're supposed to apostatize from the teachings of Moses. But do you know how people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture use this text? They say the word apostasia means departure. Which is a very unique mistranslation, incidentally, because that is never used, this word, in this way. But they say it means departure, and so what Paul is really saying is that Jesus will not come until the departure of the saints to heaven comes. The fact is that you cannot construe the word apostasy in that way, because if you read 2 Thessalonians 2, you discover that it's speaking about this apostasy. It speaks about the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, being revealed, doing signs and wonders. That's what the apostasy is all about. The context shows that this is a departure from the faith. This is not a departure from planet Earth. Another argument that is used by those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture uh, is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you'll go with me there, we'll read it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. Here the apostle Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God hasn't appointed us to wrath. And so the argument goes this way. During the tribulation, God's wrath is going to be poured out without mixture of mercy. Revelation 15 and verse 1 says that. They're right. That during the tribulation, the door of mercy has closed. The wrath of God is going to be poured out without any mixture of mercy. This world is going to be a major disaster area. They're right in that. But they say that because the Apostle Paul says that God has not appointed us to wrath, how can Christians stay in the world when God's wrath is being poured out if Christians are not appointed to wrath? Let me ask you this. How did the Hebrews stay in Egypt when the plagues were falling? When the wrath of God was falling? Were they shielded by divine power when the plagues were falling? Yes, so you don't think that if the church goes through the tribulation, God will be able to shield them from the destruction? You see, God's people are not appointed to wrath. God's wrath will not fall on God's people. They will be shielded. The worldlings will feel the wrath of God. Let me ask you, you remember Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den? That was the wrath of the king. And yet what did God do? He came in and protected him. The three young men which were thrown into the fiery furnace. By the way, this whole episode in Daniel chapter 3 is an illustration of what's going to happen during the tribulation because Nebuchadnezzar raises up an image of his God. He commands everybody to worship the image. 
Whoever doesn't worship the image is to be killed. Revelation 13 says the identical thing. The beasts raise up an image. It commands everybody to worship the image to the beast. And whoever doesn't worship the image to the beast is killed. And this, of course, takes place during the tribulation period. Now, here's the question. If God was able to protect the three young men when they went through the fiery furnace of the tribulation, why would he not be able to protect his people who go through the tribulation period? It's true that God has not appointed us to wrath. But the fact is that even though God's people go through the tribulation, they're not going to suffer God's wrath. Because the wrath is intended for those who have rejected Jesus. You see, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, didn't he? Three times he said to his father, Father, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. So Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God. And if you receive Jesus, you won't have to drink it. Because God is not going to make you make people drink the cup of his wrath twice. If Jesus drank it in your place, you don't have to worry about drinking it. It's the wicked who will drink the cup of the wrath of God. So this idea that because we're not appointed to wrath means that we're not going to go through the tribulation just doesn't hold because God can shield us in the midst of the tribulation. And incidentally, the tribulation psalm, Psalm 91, says that no plague will touch your dwelling place. This is the tribulation psalm. It's really describing the great tribulation that is found in the book of Revelation. And God there speaks about shielding and protecting his people in the midst of the tribulation. Another argument which is used is found in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, if you go with me. Revelation 3 and verse 10. And obviously we can't cover all of the arguments that are used, but I just want to use some representative views so that you see that there's another way of looking at these things. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 says the following. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, do you know, they use this phrase, I will also keep you from the hour of trial to mean that the way that he keeps them is by taking them out of the world. Let me ask you, can God keep you from the hour of trial by you staying on planet earth? Yes. In fact, I'm going to read a text that has the identical expression. And it tells us what it means. It doesn't mean to take you out of the world so he can keep you. It means that you're in the world and he will keep you from the power of the evil one. Go with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 where this identical expression is used. John chapter 17 and verse 15. Here Jesus is praying to his father and he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Very significant. But that you should what? Should keep them from the evil one. So does the fact that God keeps his people in the trial mean that he has to rapture them out? No, because Jesus says here clearly that I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one in the world. Well, this idea that keeping God's people means that they have to be taken out of the world doesn't fit with Scripture. Another argument that is used is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. Here the Apostle Paul says something which has been used uh, by Christians 
uh, and they say, you know, this text is, is so clear that how can you get around it? Well, let's take a look at it. First Thessalonians 3 and verse 13. Actually, let's read verse 12 for the context. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now what they say is, see, it says the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now he can't come with all his saints unless he came before to get them. Are you understanding me or not? Now that sounds logical. The only problem is it doesn't tell us the identity of the saints in this verse. Now who are these saints that Jesus comes with? They are not human beings at all. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 33, where the Apostle Paul is getting this from. Deuteronomy chapter 33, and verse 2. This is speaking about when God came to Mount Sinai to give his holy law. Deuteronomy chapter 33, and verse 2. It says, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Who did Jesus come with when he came to Mount Sinai? With ten thousand of his saints. What were those saints? They were angels, of course. Nobody would say that those saints had been raptured to heaven before this. Clearly, the saints that are spoken of by the Apostle Paul, when, it's, when he says that Jesus comes with all his saints, are not human saints. They are Christ and his angels. In fact, you know, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, we find that the angels are called the holy angels. Where does the word saint come from? Do you know that the word saint and the word holy are the same Greek word? So when Jesus comes with his holy angels, he's coming with his saintly angels. Incidentally, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, we find this scene. Jesus coming as king of kings and lord of lords. And all of the heavenly armies are coming with him to the earth. So in other words, Jesus, when it says that he comes with his saints, it's not talking about coming with those that he has raptured to heaven. It's talking about coming with his what? With his holy angels. Because they are called saints in the root uh, verse of Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2. Now another argument that is used is found in Matthew chapter 24. If you go with me there, Matthew chapter 24 and verses 40 to 42. And this is a real favorite. And it sounds logical. See, all of these things sound logical until you really start thinking. And you start looking for other texts which explain them, and then they don't sound so logical. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. And they say, see, it's so crystal clear. How can't you get it? It says clearly one is going to be taken. Those are the ones that are taken in the rapture to heaven. And then there's those who are left, the ones who are left behind. Now listen, folks, we need to be careful about the way we define words. We cannot define words of the Bible 
on the understanding of those words in the 20th century, we must understand them as those words were understood back then. Is that correct? So we need to understand what the Bible means by taken and left. I can give you an analogy. You know, the old King James Version says that those who die, those who are alive will not prevent those who died in Christ. Now the word prevent today means to keep someone from doing something. But in Old English, prevent means to precede. Another word in the Old King James is the word conversation. We are to have good conversation. It has nothing to do with the way you speak. So the word conversation in Old English means conduct or behavior. So you can't take a modern meaning of a word and say that that's the way that you were, that is supposed to be understood in a biblical context. Now what does this mean? Left and taken. I'm going to tell you up front that it's just the opposite of what people think. The taken ones are the ones who are destroyed. And the ones who are left are the ones that are saved. But of course you say, how is that, Pastor? I mean, taken means taken and left means left. Isn't that right? Yes, in modern English it does. But we're interested in how the Bible looks at this. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 7 and verse 23. Genesis chapter 7. By the way, the basis of the argument of Jesus here, he's basing it on the flood. You can read in the previous verses, so this idea of one being taken and the other being left, that he's using the flood as his foundation story in the context. Now notice Genesis chapter 7 and verse 23. Genesis 7 and verse 23 speaks about Noah and his family. There are two groups here I want you to notice. Verse 23 says, So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Now notice, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark, what? Remained. You know that many Bible versions translate that word, were left. And actually, that's the better translation, were left, because this is one of the words in the Bible that deals with the remnant. After there's a calamity, after there's a disaster, those who remain, those who are left. Well, let me ask you, who were the left ones at the time of the flood? The saved or the lost? Who were the taken ones? The lost, those who were destroyed. I'm going to show you this also from Matthew. You see, Jesus knew the Old Testament. He's arguing about words as they're understood in the Bible, not in our modern terminology. You know, even today we say when a flood devastates a certain area, we say, listen, did the flood take everyone away? Wasn't anyone left? Isn't that right? So even in our way of speaking, you know, was everybody destroyed? Wasn't anybody left? Left means those who are not destroyed. Those, in other words, when Jesus comes, who are saved. Now let me read you some texts of the Bible that speak about these two words, left and taken. Let's talk first of all about those who are left. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. See, old traditions die hard. <laughs> Because people are so caught up in what they've heard and what they've learned from their teachers, instead of going to the Bible for the definition of terms, that they're deceived. Now notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 4 
and I want to read verse 3. You tell me who the left ones are. It says here, And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, says the same word, in a different language, of course, it's Hebrew, whereas in Matthew it's in Greek. But Jesus is thinking like of one who knows the Old Testament. So it says, And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, and he who remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Who are the left ones in this verse? The holy ones. The ones who remain alive. Notice Isaiah chapter 11. See, Jesus knew the scriptures. He would have understood this, that the left ones are the saved and the taken ones are the lost. Notice what it says in Isaiah 11 and verse 11. This is speaking about what's going to take place after the Babylonian captivity. God is going to gather his people. It says there in verse 11, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Who are the left ones? The remnant. And then it says, from Assyria and Egypt, from Parthos and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. So the left ones are those who are left alive, those who are saved. Notice also what it says in verse 16. Same chapter. It says there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. So the left ones are whom? Are the saved. Now you can read the other verses that we have here. By the way, if you want to find other verses, just look up in a concordance the word left and the word taken. Do your own study. Don't accept what I say. Check me out. You know, I don't want you to just, just sit here and say, oh, this is so wonderful, because then you'll be committing the same mistake as those, as those who believe in this rapture idea. I'm not here for you just simply to listen to me and accept what I say say, oh, doesn't he speak so nice? Some people might not think I speak so nice because I step on toes. I'm here to awaken interest in Bible study. And that's why I give you a copy of the lecture, a copy of the verses. Go home, look them all up. Check me out. Make sure that what I'm saying is in harmony with the Bible. Now, what about those who are taken? By the way, do you know that the woman who was caught in adultery, the Greek word is the same word, the woman was taken in adultery. What does that mean, that the woman was taken in adultery? It means that she was what? Surprised. She was caught in adultery. The element of surprise. Now, notice two or three texts that speak about those who are taken. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 1. Here this word taken is used. And it's used very frequently in a military context. And by the way, when Jesus comes, he's coming as a military leader, as king of kings and lord of lords, with his holy angels. Notice what it says in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 1. It says there, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had what? Taken Ai and had utterly what? Destroyed it. What does it mean to take Ai? It means to totally destroy it. Doesn't mean to save it or to take it away. It means to destroy it. Notice also Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 28. Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 28. There we have the same word 
taken. It says there in Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 28, Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was what? Taken. And he was there when Jerusalem was taken. What does that mean, that Jerusalem was taken? Oh, Jerusalem was saved. No, it means that Jerusalem was set. Jerusalem was destroyed. The people were taken captive. And so according to the Bible, what does left mean? It means those who are saved alive. What does taken mean? It means those who are taken by surprise and destroyed. Now let's see how Jesus interpreted this. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17 and verse 27. Luke chapter 17 and verse 27, where Jesus once again is speaking about the flood. Luke 17 and verse 27. Jesus says, speaking about the pre-flood race, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came, and what? And destroyed them all. Now let's compare Matthew 24 and verse 39. What did the flood do according to Luke? It destroyed them all. Now let's notice the terminology that's used in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 39. It says about this pre-flood race, and did not know until the flood came, and what? And took them all away. So who are the ones who are taken away? The ones who are destroyed at the flood, according to Jesus himself. Luke says they were destroyed, and Matthew says they were taken away. So the taken away ones are the destroyed ones. And those who are left, the idea of the remnant, those who are left are the ones who remain how? Alive. How could Christians get it the wrong way around? Because they simply say, it says they're clear as day, taken and left. So taken means taken and left means left. But you can't treat the Bible that way. You have to let the Bible explain its own terminology, its own terms. Now the question is, how is Jesus going to come? Is he going to come in a secret pre-tribulation rapture where only a certain group are going to see him? It's going to be silent. Nobody's going to hear it. Is that the picture that the Bible gives of the rapture or the second coming of Jesus? Absolutely not. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And ironically, folks, the passage I'm going to read now is the one that is used most by people who believe in the rapture, and they actually say that this is the passage which is describing the rapture. Have mercy. That's my calling card, you know. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Notice the idea of remain again. Remain who are left. Who remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Of course, it's going to be a silent shout. With the voice of an archangel. It's going to be an archangel that has problems with his uh, voice box. And with the trumpet of God, it's going to be a silent trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen, that voice is going to be so powerful that it's going to even awaken the dead. Now that's a powerful voice. You know, you might have trouble waking up your kids to go to school in the morning. But let me tell you, when Jesus speaks 
His voice will wake up the dead. Does this sound like a secret coming of Jesus? Like a secret rapture? How can they ever construe the idea of a secret rapture out of this passage when it's so noisy? I shout the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. Notice also Matthew chapter 24, 29 and 30 about this event. The glorious rapture, the glorious second coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 24. And notice what it says in verse 31. Here it says. Actually, let's read verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Who are the powers of the heavens? Do you know who the powers of the heavens are? What are the powers that rule the heavens? What did God make to rule the day? Ah, thank you very much. What did he make to rule the night? The moon. So when it says that the powers that rule the heavens will be shaken, it means that the sun, moon, and stars will be moved from their places. Because of his voice. His powerful voice. Anything but secret. Then it says in verse 30, then the sign of sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That sounds secret. And yet, you know, it's interesting. This passage is also used to teach the secret rapture. Amazing. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says that he is coming with the clouds and some eyes shall see him. Ah, some of you are still awake. It's been a long day. It says, he is coming with the clouds, and what? Every eye shall see him. In fact, you know that Hebrews 9 and verse 28 says that Jesus, when he comes, he will come a second time. Now, if you believe in a, a secret rapture, then when Jesus comes in his glorious coming, that would be a third time. But there's no reference in Scripture to Jesus coming a third time. The Bible says he came the first time, when he became incarnate to this world, and he will come a second time without sin, and he will come to save his people. Now allow me to just mention that some people believe, all of these people who teach the rapture doctrine, not only do they teach that Jesus is going to come secretly for the church and rapture the church out of the world before the tribulation, so that the church is in heaven, and this tribulation is for the Jewish nation in the Middle East. But they also say that when the Lord Jesus comes in his glorious coming, seven years later, he's going to come to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Now we're going to see the serious repercussions of this in a, in a moment. You might be saying, who cares about how he comes? The important thing is that you believe that he's coming. Not so. We need to know how he's going to come. Or else we will be deceived, according to Jesus himself. Now, is Jesus going to come in his glorious appearing? You see, they've got it wrong. They've got it wrong on two counts. First, the idea that the church is not going to go through the tribulation. They're going to be raptured away. You think the whole Christian world is going to be deceived by that? Sure, because they believe in the rapture. What's going to happen when they find themselves in the midst of the tribulation? They're going to not, not going to have any shelter. They're not going to be ready. See, that's what the devil wants. He wants to convince Christians, don't worry about anything. 
You know, all of those prophecies of Revelation, those, all that suffering, the plagues, the seals, the trumpets, that's all for the Jews. You know, we'll be fanning ourselves in the heavenly kingdom, watching what's happening on planet Earth. What the devil wants is he wants Christians to believe that so that they are not ready for the tribulation, and when they're in the midst of the tribulation, they will not have the necessary faith to withstand and remain faithful to Jesus. Now, when Jesus comes in his glorious appearing, supposedly seven years later, is he coming to set up his kingdom on earth? No. Listen, Revelation 16 speaks of devastating plagues that are going to totally annihilate this planet practically before Jesus comes. Everybody agrees that the plagues precede the second coming of Jesus. The plagues are so terrible and so devastating. Imagine all of the oceans of the world turning into blood. Imagine all of the sources of fresh water turning into blood. Imagine the sun seven times hotter than ever before scorching the vegetation and human beings. Imagine a supernatural darkness that falls upon the earth. Imagine, according to the first plague, sores that people have in their tongues and in their mouths. A terrible plague worse than any plague that the world knows at this moment. Imagine what the world is like. Jeremiah chapter 4 says that the world is going to return to the condition it was before creation. Jeremiah says, I saw the earth, and it was without form and void. The heavens had no light. There were no men. Even the birds of the air were gone. Because the plagues are going to totally destroy and return the world to pre-creation chaos. Does that sound like the paradise that this world is going to be during the thousand years, supposedly, where Jesus is going to set up his kingdom? Well, somebody might say, well, but he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Yes, but Revelation says that it's after the thousand years, not before. Now, where, what about this idea that Jesus is going to come in his glorious appearing to set up his millennial kingdom on earth? The fact is, folks, that the New Testament contradicts that view. Go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. And let's read the promise that Jesus made. John 14, and let's read verses 1 to 3. A beautiful promise. And if you read the preceding context, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm leaving. And Peter says, you are? Where? Jesus says, well, where I'm going now, you can't go with me. He says, I want to go with you now. Peter, you can't go with me now. He says, I'll give my life for you. He was uttering a prophecy because that is, that, that's exactly what happened to him. But he wanted to go with Jesus. So Jesus knew that Peter and the disciples were troubled because Jesus had said that he was leaving. And so now Jesus gives this very famous promise. Verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Where is the Father's house? Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art, who art on earth. No, okay. He said, our Father who art where? In heaven. The Father's house is in heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he go? To heaven. Who is he preparing a place for? Us. Oh, is he planning to take us to heaven then? Not at the rapture, the way the Christian world understands it, but when he comes in glory. 
Now, let's continue reading. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and live with you forever. Now, I will come again and what? Receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Did Jesus promise to come and set up his everlasting kingdom here when he comes a second time? No. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and when I come, I will receive you unto myself. That you might be in the father's house. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't know how Christians can miss this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The apostle Paul corroborates what the Lord Jesus said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's start once again at verse 15. The Apostle Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be what? Why would he catch us up if he's coming down here to set up his everlasting kingdom? Are you with me? It says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Does Jesus touch the earth when he returns? No. I want to show you in a few moments that this is a serious thing. Because the devil is going to counterfeit the second coming of Jesus. And he's going to walk up and down on planet earth. He's going to speak the way Jesus spoke. He's going to heal the diseases of people. And Christians believing that Christ is going to set up his millennial kingdom on earth will think it is Christ when it is Antichrist. So he says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Notice also Matthew 24 and verse 31. We read the previous two verses. Let's read verse 31 now. It says here, and he will send his angels. Now wait a minute. He's going to what? Send his angels. By the way, he's still in the sky if you read the context when he sends his angels. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Remember, this is parallel to what Paul said. He'll come with the sound of the trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect. Jesus is not gathered to us. The angels gather us to be with him. You see it? And so it says, will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Notice also 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. This idea of being gathered to Jesus, not Jesus being gathered to us, is found constantly in the writings of the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1 says, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, he is not gathered to us, we are gathered to him. Because he's taking us where? To his father's house. You say, but doesn't the Bible say that the meek will inherit the earth? Yes, after the thousand years, God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where the meek will inherit the earth. 
But God's people will spend how long in heaven? Seven years? Not long enough. A thousand years honeymoon with Jesus. And then he'll say, okay, we've had a long enough honeymoon. I mean, a thousand years. He says, let's go now to our permanent home. The home that I am preparing for you. A new heaven and a new earth. Incidentally, do you know that Jesus warned against people who believe that Christ will come all the way down to the earth? Notice Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And let's begin reading at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, whom? Even the elect. Although you know he's not going to deceive the elect because we just read a little, uh, uh, a few verses further down that it says that he comes to gather his elect. So he's going to try to deceive the elect, but he will not be successful. Now let me ask you, why would Jesus be coming for his elect if the elect were in heaven? Why would he warn his elect about being deceived by the devil during the tribulation if they were raptured to heaven before the tribulation? Then it says in verse 25, See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Why not? Because Jesus is not going to be seen anywhere on planet earth. He's going to be seen where? In the sky. Notice verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The Christian world is setting itself up for a huge deception by believing that Jesus is going to come to establish his millennial kingdom because devil is, the devil is going to have a counterfeit second coming. You say, where is that? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to show you that the devil is going to have a counterfeit second coming. He's going to actually make it appear like Jesus has come. But there's a difference. Whereas Jesus will remain in the sky, the devil will walk upon the earth. And that will give him away. Because when Jesus comes, he's not going to touch the earth. He will touch the earth after the thousand years when he comes to this earth, according to Zechariah chapter 14. Now let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's about the Antichrist. And then I want you to notice verse 8 particularly. It says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now that word coming there, speaking about the coming of Jesus, is the Greek word parousia. I don't like to use a lot of Greek words, but this is an important word, parousia. In other words, this wicked Antichrist is going to be destroyed by the glory of the parousia, or the coming of Jesus. But do you know that before that there's going to be another parousia, or another coming? Notice verse 9. The coming, do you know what word that is? Parousia. See, the lawless one also has his what? His coming. And it must be before the other coming, for the simple reason that when the other coming takes place, he's destroyed. Because it couldn't be after, because how could, he, could it be after if he's destroyed? Are you understanding me? Verse 9. It says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of whom? Of Satan. How is he going to come? 
with all power, signs, and lying wonders. You know that there's only one other text in the Bible where this combination of words is used? Power, signs, and lying wonders? Not lying wonders, but wonders. It's Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. We won't go there. But there it speaks about these things as being done by Jesus when he was on earth. And now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, it uses the same three words for Satan, who is going to do power and signs and wonders like Jesus did, but it's going to be false. And because the whole Christian world is expecting Jesus to come all the way down to the earth and set up his everlasting kingdom here for a thousand years, they will be right and ready to receive him. And listen, folks, it's a sobering fact that as a Jewish nation, God's own professed people with their many denominations and with their religious leaders misinterpreted prophecy and therefore fulfilled prophecy in killing Jesus. We're going to study in this lecture series, we still have some subject to study, the Christian world with its many denominations, with its religious leaders, because of a misinterpretation of prophecy as to how Jesus will come, they will arise of course, not to kill Jesus, because Jesus is in heaven, but they will arise to kill the body of Christ, Jesus' true followers on earth. And in this way, they will fulfill prophecy, and they won't even realize it, because they've looked at a Middle, Middle Eastern fulfillment of prophecy, and they're fulfilling prophecy, and they can't see it, because they're looking in the wrong place. Sobering. Now, let me conclude by saying this. There is an event that takes place before the tribulation. Right before the tribulation. And before Jesus comes in glory. It's not the rapture. It's the close of human probation. See, there is something that's going to happen before the, Jesus comes. Before the tribulation. See, most people think that they can prepare until they see Jesus on the clouds. Oh, you know, when I see him start coming, I'll say, Lord, I'm sorry. And Jesus will say, I'm sorry too. You see, the Bible teaches that probation will close when the tribulation is about to begin. The tribulation will go by and then Jesus will come in glory and God's people will have to live in the midst of the tribulation. They will have to have a faith which is unshakable and unbreakable and the devil knows it. That's why he tells Christians that they're going to be gone. Serious stuff. I'd like to go back to the days of Noah. Let me ask you, how many groups were there in the days of Noah when it rained? Two. When were those groups separated? When it started to rain or before? I want you to notice this. First of all, the preaching of Noah. The door of mercy is open. Right? All the preaching. Then what happens? The door closes. Have you ever wondered why it didn't start to rain the same day the door closed? Because God was wanting to show that this is a prophecy of end times. So the door closes. How many groups are there when the door closes? Two. The saved and the lost. Is there any chance for the lost to become saved? Is there any chance for the saved to become lost? No, all cases are decided not when it starts to rain, but when the door shuts. And then, 
There's a period of tribulation for Noah and his family. Their faith must have been severely tested. One day goes by, nothing. Two days, three days, four days, five days, six days. The wicked outside are getting more and more violent in their speech and in their actions. Probably Noah and his family start wondering, hmm, I wonder whether maybe we made a mistake. But they hang on. And then rain comes from heaven and destroys the wicked and the righteous are shielded in the midst of destruction. And Jesus said, so will it also be when at the coming of the Son of Man. Like it was in Noah's day, the door will shut, there will be a tribulation where faith will be tested, and then destruction will come. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the end time. So there is going to be an event before Jesus comes in glory, but it is not the rapture, it is the close of human probation, which will separate the righteous from the wicked. Go with me to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. Let me just say something very interesting. You have a Bible which is a red letter edition. The red letters are the words of Jesus. Listen to what I want to say. If you look in your Bible, your seminar Bible, you'll find that there are only red letters in the first three chapters and in the last two chapters with the exception of one verse. Now that's interesting, isn't it? To the seven churches, Jesus talks all the time. Revelation 20 to 22, 21 and 22, Jesus talks all the time to his remnant people. But there's only one verse between Revelation 4 and Revelation 21 where Jesus speaks. Do you think we need to pay attention to that verse? Hmm. It's in Revelation 16, verse 15. Awesome verse. For those who say that the, that the church is not going to be on this earth in the tribulation, think again. It says here in verse 15, this is in the context of the sixth plague. The plagues are almost ended. And Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. The coming of the thief has two stages. You say, now wait a minute, Pastor. Yeah, two stages. When he comes and when you discover he came. Right? Because Jesus says, as a thief in the night, so you're sleeping, and the thief comes, and he steals a bunch of stuff from your house that you probably didn't need anyway. And you're sleeping. And then in the morning, when you wake up, you say, oh no, the thief has visited me. So really, the thief steals before you realize it. Probation will close before you realize it. You see, what that's, this is the dimension of the coming of Jesus that people don't understand, is the fact that Jesus is going to close the door of mercy before he comes. And he's going to pronounce those words, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous, righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And then he says, behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone as their work will be. Now let's go back here. When Jesus says he's coming as a thief, he's not talking about his second coming primarily in glory. He's talking about what? The closing of the door. When everybody is unaware because they're sleeping. So he says, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches 
and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. To make a long story short, do you know where that comes from? The idea of garments, walking naked, and seeing shame? It comes from the message of Christ to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, verse 18. And everybody has agreed that the messages that are given to the seven churches are for the church, for the church age. But in Revelation 3, verse 18, God says to Laodicea, the end time church, the lukewarm church, he says, listen, let's read it. Go with me to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18. This will be our last verse. He warns the last day church with the same words that we found in the sixth flag. Let me ask you, if he uses those words in the sixth flag, must it be that the church will be in the world during the time of the fifth day? No doubt about it, or else he wouldn't warn the church about it. Because it would have nothing to do with them. Notice Revelation 3 and verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold and find in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be what? Revealed. Is the church going to be in the world at the time of the sixth plague? Is there a danger that Jesus will catch the church sleeping because they're expecting Jesus to come in a different way than the Bible teaches? Folks, it behooves us to know how Jesus will come. And it behooves us also to love his appearing. The appearing as it's mentioned in the Bible. Do you love Jesus? I want to ask tonight, I want to do something different. How many of you would like me to have a special prayer as we close this evening? To ask God to come to your heart and to your life. You want to say to Jesus, I want to be ready for the close of human probation. I want to be ready for your coming. I want to spend eternity with you. If that, that's your desire, why don't you stand with me tonight? Don't do it because everybody does it. Do it because you really want to be ready for the coming of Jesus. You want to receive Jesus as your wonderful Savior and Lord who is soon coming to take his saints. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your word about the rapture. Thank you because you warned us, because we know that if we don't realize these things, the devil is going to defeat us. We're not going to be ready for the tribulation. We're going to receive the counterfeit second coming. We don't want to do that. We want to be on the side of Jesus. I ask, Lord, for everyone who has gathered here tonight that has stood and responded to your call, particularly those who perhaps have never heard these things before, I ask, Lord, that you will impress their hearts through your Holy Spirit to help them to prepare to give their life to Jesus and eventually to be baptized and to join the body of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.